Broadcasting live from the Great Northern Hotel in beautiful Twin Peaks, Washington, I'm Matt. I'm Caroline, and this is an episode-by-episode breakdown and discussion of all three seasons of Twin Peaks. If you need to know how to make funeral arrangements in the greater Twin Peaks area, or how to donate to your local chapter of the Bookhouse Boys, this is a podcast for you. Today, we're going to be talking about episode four, Rest in Pain. Well, episode three, the fourth episode, right? Rest in pain! Jesus. Weren't we going to have bumper music at some point? You know? Do, 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 do. I wouldn't be that bumper Dude, music, probably. Or... I don't know. Kinda when just... have we ever had bumper music? We haven't. I'm saying we were going to get it, right? Um, sure. Uh, so, due to certain changes in our living situation, we have accepted the gracious offer of the Great Northern Hotel to record our podcast in their main lounge room. Um, because of that, I am on some relatively squeaky uh, antique furniture they've got there. It is gorgeous, though. Um, and there may be uh, you know, some, some other uh, guests of the hotel moving in and out. Uh, so, apologies for any, any background noise like that. But, you know. We make do in Twin Peaks. Uh, We're sorry about all the background noise. Yeah, we are recording in suboptimal spaces. Well, it's it's. I think it's. I think it's a very optimal space. It is an absolutely gorgeous room. Um, You know, you've got a bar. There's dancing, fireplace. I'm in the basement of the university library. For everyone who's interested in like what's reality. (sighs) Why are you ruining my bit? I thought it was really funny. That's my whole bit. Is ruining your bit. All right. Well. Yeah, in truth, I'm actually just recording in the janitorial closet at the Great Northern, uh, but also suboptimal conditions. He's in a garage. Shh, stop it. Um, okay, so, yeah, we watched Rest in Pain, the fourth episode that's episode three. Um, I can't gonna, believe it does this for the whole season. Yeah, I we got to stop We gotta stop making the joke eventually, but <laughs> we haven't warmed it out yet. Um, so, uh, we open on Audrey daydreaming sort of as she's standing around in the great northern um and it's it's sort of like i wrote that it's sort of like she's imagining the credit sequence almost uh because of the way they juxtapose the fade in after the credits um so uh but coop walks in and uh a friend of mine who was watching the episode with me uh very cramped in that janitorial closet uh (laughs) just said instantly horny uh and it was (laughs) Because Audrey goes, hello, Colonel Cooper. And James Bond style, he says, just Agent Audrey, special agent. Um. Jesus. <laughs> I would say, like, that the two of them need to calm down, but the... They won't. They won't listen to you. They won't, first of all. And then second of all, like, once they do stop having there be sexual tension between Coop and Audrey, both of their... Um, romantic plot lines get so bad. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just so bad. <laughs> mm, my boy so Billy guess, Zane. Oh, coming geez. in to steal your girl on his plane. Um. So, I mean, I guess I guess this awkward, awkward flirting is better than the season two alternative. Well, it seems like Coop also has an alternative motive because although he is complimenting her perfume, uh, he also has her write her name down uh, so that he can not so subtly uh, sort of cross-examine it with the Jack with one eye note that he got earlier. 
and it's obviously Audrey. So he confronts her about it, um, and she says it's a place men go and women work at. Um, she also mentions that Laura worked at the makeup counter at Horn's department store, or Dad's department store, and Coop uh, realizes that Ronette uh, Pulaski also worked at that same uh, makeup counter. And it's the it's the perfume counter. Perfume though, counter. Which is, oh shit! Did which, I say it wrong? You said makeup counter, which oh, is interesting. Balls. <laughs> no, I just I think it's interesting that it's the perfume counter and that Coop recognizes the note, <coughs> like has like smells like Audrey's perfume. I don't know. <coughs> parallel there. Um. Yeah, no, I, that is, I, that's pretty cool. Um, so. There's lots of little stuff like that in these episodes, but I don't know whether, like, I don't know whether they're intentional parallels or just sort of happened to be that way, but I like that. I think, you know, there's a certain amount of attention to detail with stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I guess I'll just say at the top before we go on that, um, when I watched this episode, uh. I realized that it was neither directed nor written by uh, David Lynch or Mark Frost. Um, yeah, it was, I noticed that too. Go ahead. Oh, it was just uh, so this episode was directed by Tina Rathbone and written by Harley Payton. So, um, and and at first I sort of didn't like this episode a little bit, and I was kind of blaming them. But I rewatched it um, after taking all the show notes. And decided that I kind of came around to this episode, so I guess I'm just doing judgment off the top. But that also made me realize that we may have previously left out that in episode one, episode two, um, it was written by Lynch and Frost, but directed by Dwayne Dunham. So uh, we will do our research better in the future because we sort of didn't attribute that properly. Oops. Yeah, so that was the... um... What was the what was the title of the second episode? Oh boy, we really should do our research. Here we go. Episode one was Traces to Nowhere. Traces to Nowhere, yeah. So Traces um, to Nowhere was was not a Lynch directed episode. Yeah. Yeah. No. However, I episode that too. episode two, Xander um, the Skill to Catch a Killer, is uh, directed by David Lynch and written and directed by or written by Mark Frost and David Lynch. So you're okay on that. Yeah. But we'll so, watch out in the future. Yeah, and we, we talk about that a lot in the last one, about it being directed by David Lynch, which, I mean, I think, like, even though we didn't notice or didn't say that the other one wasn't, I think it's sort of indicative that, like, when it is directed by David Lynch, we talked about it a lot because it's, you know, very obvious just his his style and, and choices, and they stand out and are more noteworthy. But, no, I noticed that, too, and I think that that was what I meant um, when we were watching this, and I said that something about this episode was weird. And I at first I thought it was oh, pacing. We have to put uh, one quarter in the weird jar. Oh, uh, boy. Because we've... Uh... I haven't gotten through a sentence yet, this podcast. I just threw a bottle cap into a coffee mug because I forgot I was going to do this gag. But from now on, anytime we use the, weird, the word weird, uh, quarter in the weird jar because we've been using that a lot. Can I say the rest of my thing? Yeah, you can. Go ahead. <laughs> your, your bits are interrupting my commentary. I'm sorry. I'm getting them all off, like, right at the start, so we can just... Yeah, sure. Sure. 
definitely believe you. No, I. So when we watched this episode, um, I I noticed that there was something different about it, and at first I thought it was the pacing, um, and I couldn't quite, which is why I asked you if you thought that the pacing of this episode was different, and I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was, but I think that it it was that it wasn't written or directed by David Lynch Mm -hmm. and it wasn't written by Mark Frost. And, um, I think, you know, that really shifted the tone of it. And I felt like this episode was hitting all the same notes as a normal episode of Twin Peaks, but it was hitting them kind of sincerely in a way that the, the other episodes hadn't been so far. And I think that was what seemed unusual to me. Hmm. in that it felt like it was more sincere in a lot of the the notes that it hit um and so yeah i think so too i mean i think especially getting later in the episode we'll talk about it but i agree i don't think it was a bad thing though i think it no i think it works to its advantage i again i came around to this episode so well and i think the other thing too is that it you know, it's still really well written and it's still a really good episode, mm. but it did feel a little bit unusual. And I think that was <laughs> good. Uh, good substitution for weird. Unusual. All right. Sometimes I just use other words. Oh, I know. Leave me alone. <laughs> I just, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I just, I think that, um, you know, this, this episode came off as like just a really good episode of a TV show. Right. And this kind of, like, I think Twin Peaks could have still been a really good show without being Twin Peaks, hmm. if that makes sense. Because I think, like, this is kind of what it would have been like if this concept hadn't been, like, a David Lynch thing. If somebody else had come up with this show, this is probably how they would have done it. And it still could have been really good. Um, and I think this episode was really good, but it didn't have that, like ironic tone that I think some of the previous episodes did but uh, you're right I agree I I liked it I think it was good to have a little bit of of balance um, and have you know a moment of more sincerity especially coming off such a weird episode and weird ending for episode three um, because that must have been like super disconcerting for the audience and so I think this kind of restabilized probably restabilized them a little bit yeah okay uh well speaking of episode three um because now now that we've given our uh our wrap up uh we can we can finish the 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 rest of the story only only like a note left or two um but no so uh episode three ended on yeah the uh his dream about mike and bob in the red room and so after coop is done uh sort of flirtily interrogating Audrey, uh, she leaves and Harry and Lucy walk in and Harry asks, uh, who killed Laura Palmer? And Coop gives sort of, he recounts his dream. Uh, but I went back and rewatched, uh, episode, uh, the previous one. Uh, and, <laughs> and the, the dream that he recounts to, uh, to Truman and Lucy is not, really exactly what happens um in what we're shown on screen which i think is kind of cool um uh, because i remember because the first time i watched it uh without going back i was like that that doesn't sound quite right and it wasn't but um i'm okay with that uh but after all that he sort of goes on about how at the very end 
uh, Laura's doppelganger uh, whispered the name of the killer uh, into his ear, but he forgot. And he doesn't remember yeah. who it was. So, Which, good job, ugh, Coop. Like, Guess it couldn't wait till morning. Yeah, like, it totally could have been like, hey, Harry, I had, like, a really weird dream, and, like, I thought someone told me the name of Laura's killer, but I forgot it. Which, like, if someone called me at, like, four in the morning with that kind of thing, I'd be extremely annoyed. <laughs> like, you had a dream that you knew the killer's name and forgot it. Like, can I go the fuck back to bed? <laughs> um, but, but then, uh, then we go to Albert and Doc Hayward, and they're having a fight over Laura's body. Uh, yeah. Cause... because Albert wants to do another autopsy and spend more time, like yeah, I don't know, doing his forensic analysis thing. Like, I don't know why but... Doc Hayward is so upset. Like I also like I get I don't know because they already they already scheduled the funeral. I think. Like, I guess so. Like it's that day. I guess. But yeah. It's just I don't know. This seems like. Whatever. I just I, mean, I don't know why you would schedule the funeral when it's like the corpse is actively part of a murder investigation. Yeah, I mean, I guess... That the FBI has stepped into, but oh well. Fair enough. I sort of thought that drama was a little forced, but... Um, and then Ben Horn is also there, and he just says he's the Palmer family representative... Yeah, Which I was confused so I, about. Yeah. Why? Like, Isn't that literally like the opposite of his relationship yeah, to Leland Palmer? Yeah, I was going to say, isn't Leland his lawyer? Yeah. Which I, I guess, though, that it's, you know, I mean, the Palmers don't really have, like, anyone else that they're super well connected to. So, I mean, I guess that, you know, Ben Horn is probably just the the first um nope that was the sentence i was looking at the notes and <laughs> i didn't i'd said wrong thing gotta watch the hands <laughs> not the mouth spider first go what? see it here's my movie review it's great oh my um. gosh <laughs> yeah just make sure you're not in front of a loud baby oh i was behind that yeah or, yeah in front of that baby mm-hmm. yeah he was very upset. I heard about it for days. Um, uh, let me tell you, folks. Turn off your phones. Turn off your babies. We're all <laughs> here to watch the movie in peace. Um, um, no, yeah, I guess, like, that. you know, Ben Horn is just sort of, like, the only one close enough to the Palmers to represent them. I don't know. Like, I guess. Like, it's true, though. The Palmers really don't have any like real relationships like yeah outside of each other and it's like obviously strained we'll talk about that more and then yeah like the relationship of sort of their dead daughter to the rest of the town so that yeah, yeah I and know. i mean a, a little bit you know to the haywards because of, oh yeah that's true um, and yeah but, but all of their connections are really through Laura. Cause like yeah, when, exactly, yeah, exactly. When Sarah Palmer is calling around at the, at the beginning of the, the pilot, 
she calls Bobby's mom um, to see if Laura is with, was with Bobby. But yeah, they don't really seem to have any like friends, yeah. which I mean, I guess is not really you know well, not really the point of the show. But that's well, also it sort of is. I mean, it comes back in the new in the the latest season. Um, yeah, with so. Sarah. So, um, but anyway, so they're fighting and Doc Doc Hayward and Albert sort of go at it. And I just have a note. I don't remember exactly what this was, but I said that the camera work is kind of wonky. Um, and the friend that was watching this with me remarked that uh, Sheriff Truman's hat is too small for his head, which it is. Um, it's an adorably awkward-sized hat. Um, but eventually, Albert just sort of enrages Truman to the point that he punches him and falls onto Laura, contaminating the evidence. So really poor handling of casework all around. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think this scene, too, is another one that sort of just, like, sets up this, you know, this tension between how the FBI is handling the investigation of Laura's murder as a murder investigation into a potential serial killer um, and how everybody in the town is kind of handling it. Because that's the thing about, you know, Truman and Doc Hayward being so incensed about this. I mean, Truman, it's just because sort of like on on behalf of Twin Peaks, um, you know, Albert has insulted many times now the town and the police force in the town kind of at large. Um, but, you know, Doc Hayward is, is personally invested in this and he's personally affected by it. Um, and that's come up a couple of times. And we've commented before about how, um, how much of a shift it is in the pilot when Coop shows up and he just, you know, he, he's not affected by it except in relation to his job and he asks truman like what was this girl's name again mm. so i think it just heightens that tension and contrast yeah and miguel ferrer is so caustic and he's so good like i mean i know that guy's in a lot of stuff and he's kind of like just a well-known character actor that's in a lot of tv um doing bit parts but my god is he so he's so funny he's so on in this um yeah he's really he's really good um, i don't know why like i don't know why he's He's, he's such he's so aggressively an asshole and like, yeah. I, I guess I don't like I don't know really what the char- like what that character is supposed to represent of like I guess it's sort of a fo- it's just a foil to coop being a really really good FBI guy who loves to work with the local police but yeah, yeah I, don't, I mean I'm not I mean, I, like, go on yeah I think I think you know coops being so enamored with Twin Peaks would get a little bit grating um, if it wasn't sort of cut by Albert's. Mm. I want to call it cynicism, but it's not. It's just it's pure not. dickery. Uh. <laughs> well, and he, he gets into it later, too. No, it's true. It's true. Um, he, and he, he explains his sort of motivating philosophy. And he's, he's a softened good boy in the new season. Um, and rest in peace, Miguel, because you're amazing. But uh, after that, we cut to, we've got an invitation to love, so that means it's our mini-show within a show, the red room of this podcast, if you will, invitation to listen, which really, we should have shopped that more, but oh well. Um, so <laughs> I think we get we get like a cast introduction. Or at all, at because all. you didn't tell me we were doing it yeah, until we did it. Well, you know, sort of just like the red room and... 
you know. And you know, it, it comes out of a, it a comes running, out of, a running theme of this. It show, comes out of nowhere. You can't ex- you don't know how to expect it, and everything's just a little bit off. But we have no idea what's going on, and then suddenly we're there. Exactly. Um, we get a cast introduction, like through narration and stuff, and we see like an old. Like bearded father character is signing and narrating like a suicide note and it's sort of like it's uh juxtaposed with leland watching it and so you've got kind of a thematic pairing because he's obviously hurting um but then uh cousin maddie shows up uh right after the the daughter shows up in Invitation yeah 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 exactly and so, so it's, it's pretty direct parallel yeah it's one, one wouldn't call it ham-fisted, but one would not say subtle either. Um, no. And, yeah, so Maddie is, like, a dark-haired uh, doppelganger of Wara. Literally played by the yeah. same actor. Um, Cheryl so. Lee. Yeah, and that, you know, that sort of ties, she, I don't know, I forgot that she showed up this early. I didn't I did think too, I was going to have I... to think about, like, her character yet. But I guess, I mean, it makes it makes sense. I forgot the funeral was this early. So the first season moves a lot more quickly than I thought it did, which makes sense. It's not that many episodes. Um, you know, the second season is so long. So I always think that the first season is also that long and that the first season should take more time to unfold. Mm. But it's only, what, like 10 episodes? 12? Jeez, uh, eight. I'm just throwing out numbers here. Uh, we'll find out. We won't even look it up. Um, it'll be an adventure yeah. for us. See how badly prepared we are, listeners. Um, this is what you get from podcasting out of a janitorial closet. But we use only the finest mops. Um, locally sourced. I bought a mop the other day. Oh, good. Like a real adult. Wow. Impressive. Now your skills are complete. Uh, <laughs> I had to call my mom to figure out how to mop the kitchen floor. Um but so at the very least, Maddie, uh, I don't want to say parallels because there's like seven different parallels because she's also Laura, but she is sort of like a, a, a real realization, ugh, manifestation of the doppelganger that Coop uh, experienced in his dream. Uh, so you get that theme manifesting in both sort of the Red Room aspect and also in reality. And... Uh, she, like, apologizes to Leland and hugs him. And so now she's, like, sort of a replacement daughter uh, to Leland. And it fades to black way too quick again. <laughs> I noticed that yeah, this time. I yeah. was like, oh, that, there, was, there was a commercial, commercial break, break there. But, nice. but, yeah, just having this character uh, for Leland and for Sarah. Uh, I mean, again, this I, like, I forget so many weird things, like, that this even happens and it happens this early. But... I'm curious to see how they how they handle this and what this unfolds to, because it's a little bit of a mystery for me. But we cut to the double R, and uh, Norman, I have Norman in my nose, but it should be Norma, uh, is discussing the terms of her husband's parole, Hank, uh, with, like, he's, I don't know what he is, just like a, a, a lawyer-type guy. Yeah, I, I assume it's Hank's lawyer. I guess it's Hank's lawyer. Um, Confirming again that there are multiple lawyers in Twin Peaks. I guess, okay. Uh, so he was in, not the lawyer, uh, the actor who plays Hank, whose name escapes me, um, was in the Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie, 
which I bring up because I it took me forever to figure out that that's who it wow, was. Wow, Army Hammer um, was Hank. <laughs> uh, Chris Mulkey. Yeah, yeah, he played um, he played like a, a client, um, and so I, I bring this up for for two reasons. One, because this happens to me a lot, where I'll see an actor from Twin Peaks. Um, it happens less now that the third season has come out, but. It happened to me a lot where I would see an actor from Twin Peaks and I'd be like, I know them. What are they from? Because I would see them in something that like had come out recently and they'd be 20 years older. And so I would like they wouldn't look quite like they did. Mm. um, But I would know, you know, who they like. I would I would know that I had seen them before it happened. Um, uh, It's happened with a. Yeah, with it's happened with a couple of. Of things. Do you want to um, give an example? No. Okay. <laughs> I just, I was trying to think of something else and then I couldn't remember it off the top of my head. But so the other reason that I bring this up is because speaking of Twin Peaks actors being in other things, have you seen the Dr. Pepper commercial? No. Okay. There's a weird, Ray Wise is in a Dr. Pepper commercial. Ray Wise is in everything. Yeah, but it's, he's like, it's like a mystery Dr. Pepper commercial. They've set up this whole thing. It's a football thing where, like, it's fan town and all the football fans are, I don't know. It's just a very big deal that everybody's very jazzed about the NFL in this town. And um, they're also very excited about Dr. Pepper. And then something goes missing. I, did, I wasn't really, like... <laughs> paying a ton of attention to this commercial until the very end when Ray Wise shows up as, like, the criminal thief guy. And I couldn't tell if they were making a reference or not because he, like, they light him very sinisterly and, like, have... I mean... Like, he's, like, in an interrogation room. Ray Wise is just a terrifying-looking man. Yeah, I guess. But it was... I mean, it was such a weird, like... It was, like, this... There was... (laughs) This, like... Dr. Pepper commercial seemed like it was kind of a, it it seemed like it was a, like they'd made it a a Twin Peaks reference, but they hadn't tried very hard. (laughs) So it was hard to tell if it was intentional or not, or if they were just like being really tropey with it and like whole town gets caught up in, you know, sinister mystery turns out Ray Wise is involved. I guess I just accidentally spoiled it, but oops. <laughs> yeah, you accidentally spoiled a Dr. Pepper commercial. No, this, no. I was trying to save you there. God, take a fucking life preserver when I toss it. <laughs> no. All right, so. When have I ever? Thank you for now. <laughs> You've also given a great summary of a Dr. Pepper commercial starring Ray, Ray Wise. Um, it was It was so weird. I couldn't figure out, like. It was it was just a very very weird thing to watch. <laughs> All right, so Norma, I'm just gonna try and get through some bullet points. <laughs> you talk to if you get to talk about Spider Verse, I get to talk about Doctor Pepper commercials. All right, I mean, <laughs> anyway, so Norma discusses uh, Hank's parole with this lawyer, um, and he's an asshole, and she's kind of like. A badass. I don't remember this bit too well. But obviously, like, she sort of wants Hank to get out, but kind of doesn't. I don't know. The dynamics are confusing, and they kind of play with that later. So we'll just move on. Um, But Cooper and Leo meet, I think, for the first time. Um, 
and Truman and, and Cooper are there to interrogate him. And Leo says that he didn't know Laura personally and that he has no criminal record. He's like chopping wood. So you can, it, it was funny because the friend that I was watching with thought that they were doing something where it was like the cops like falsely accusing the, you know, the, the farm boy or whatever. And I was like, no, 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 he's, he's a crazy psychopath. But, um, <laughs> but Coop uh, actually just counters him and says, actually, you do have criminal charges. I looked you up. So it's just kind of a power move. And then we cut to one of my favorite scenes in the episode uh, is right before Laura's funeral. And that's sort of, I guess, the big framing mechanism of the episode. And I really, really like it for that. I forgot that this happens. And I think that um, it, it makes season one a lot more cohesive than I remember it being because it is very short. So I think we're almost halfway through. And having, having the funeral is like the next thing that happens. Very cool. Um, and really keeps the story tight, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. And gives... I have a lot of thoughts about Yeah, the gives like a focal point of it too for all the characters to come around because we've seen a lot of them sort of doing their own thing uh, for the last two episodes or so. Um, so, but we see Bobby uh, stretching, like sort of dance stretching almost. I don't, not like aerobics or hot yoga, but just like... I don't know. He's sort of sex. He's just like stretching out his arms really slowly. Yeah, he's sort of doing like a rock star sexy stretch. I don't know. It's over exactly. Yeah, in front of a crucifix and. Uh, sort of mirroring yeah. the, the pose, obviously. Which I guess hashtag Illuminati confirmed. Bobby is Jesus. Uh, <laughs> but Briggs comes in to have a discussion with him. Um, and Bobby's like playing. He's just like playing with a lighter, flicking it on and off the entire time. And as I wrote, uh, Briggs is talking to him about some Lion King shit, uh, about like moving on and, you know, coming together as a community to understand mourning the dead, but the ritual of it making us better. It's it's actually really cool. Like I, I, re- I, I say this, I'll get to it in a second, but like this scene is really cool because um, not only is this like, it's just it's shot from one. One shot on just the two of them with the crucifix behind them mm-hmm. sitting next to each other. And he's just talking to them. They're not making eye contact. And it had a really sort of like new Hollywood feel to it, um, as did all the uh, the previous scenes of Major Briggs. And so I've really come around to them. Um, going to have to explain to me what that means. Oh, so I don't know. Boy, it's a lot of film history to go there. Um, okay. We'll Wikipedia it later. But... But so they're ready to go to yeah. the funeral, and at the end of this talk, Briggs is like, "Hey, Bobby, like, don't be afraid." And Bobby's Bobby's like, "Well, be afraid of what?" And he's like, the, "Be afraid of the funeral." And Bobby flips out on him, um, and he yeah. says, "Afraid? I'm not afraid. I'm gonna turn that thing upside down." Um, and he's just yelling, and it's really cool. Yeah. I love this scene. Um, all the major Briggs scenes are just so far have been really good filmmaking and like just very compelling writing in a way that the rest of the show doesn't always have to me. Um, Yeah. Well, and I think like major Briggs too is uh, like, you know, he works as a, he works on a couple of levels because he's obviously this just sort of compelling character who's clearly trying to, uh, you know, impart like all of this wisdom onto his son that his son just doesn't want anything to do with. Um, so, you know, like, obviously there's sort of a in, like, in-show 
dynamic that's really well developed there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think too, like that there's these these scenes are kind of also meant to kind of express certain things to the viewer and to kind of elicit and like to get, I felt like we're supposed to react to Major Briggs like in the way, either sort of by like associating with Bobby and being like, what is this guy on about? Or, you know, kind of like not react in the same way that Bobby is and kind of like get it. Um, I don't know if it felt, what? (laughs) Nothing, nothing. I I, was, I I sort of I had previously used the phrase get it in describing Major Briggs. Um, I just I think we're both coming around to the ethos of the Briggs. That's all. Uh, okay. Um. Well, yeah. I mean, I think well, I. I think I said this in the previous episode too. It's just that like I had previously had the oh come on dad, leave him alone reaction. But now when I hear him talk, I'm like this is like I don't know. It's it's kind of I I really like him talking about like the ritual i don't necessarily believe in it either but like he's talking about like the, i think the ritual of like burying people um as a way to sort of communally like accept and um move on from their death and i i don't know it's again it's it's that sincerity that you were talking about and just sort of like again it's, it's convincing writing that i think could also yeah could be dropped into like a different show that wasn't all that sort of weird twin peaks um yeah so uh, we cut to Alfred giving his findings on the body. Alfred? Alfred, God, dude. Like, oh, it's because I've been watching a lot of the 60s Batman. Um, I want to talk about some hilarious satire there. Jeez. Uh, man, disaster on these notes, guys. I'm very sorry. So Albert. So Albert, yeah. We cut back to, yeah, the, um, the sheriff station, and Albert is kind of, um, like, walking through his findings with, Truman and Coop, so, yeah, Laura did cocaine. Um, yeah. Newsflash. Did cocaine, um, and both uh, Ronald Polanski and Laura Palmer uh, were tied up with similar twine, and Laura was tied up in yes. two different locations. I didn't quite get all with, the sort of jargon that uh, Albert was throwing. Yeah, but... so she was tied up with two different kinds of twine. Okay. Um, so she was tied up with one kind that matched Ronit Pelaski and then one kind that didn't. So that implies that she was t- tied up twice by two different people who weren't using the same twine. Okay. Coop also makes the connection that, like, that's why her arms sometimes bend back, which is the bend thing back. that the doppelganger said in the dream. Um, there's also right. claw marks and bite marks made by an animal. And uh, Albert says that he found a plastic fragment in her stomach uh, that he's taken back to the lab. But... Notice there's a letter J on it. Um, Truman and everyone else have to depart to go to the funeral. Um, and Albert asks Cooper if he will sign a report about Truman punching him. Uh, but Coop gallantly refuses. And he just sort of goes on a speech about, like, the good people of Twin Peaks. And uh, I wrote here that he just he outlines the themes and ideas of the good side of Twin Peaks. Um, mm-hmm. And... We'll get into the bad, the dark side of Twin Peaks, as they explicitly call it uh, later in the episode. Um, but he tells Albert off, um, and then he asks Diane to uh, check real estate options and look into his pension plan. Um, and I guess it's implying that he wants to move to Twin Peaks. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it meant like that he was going to move to Twin Peaks like effective immediately, or he, or if he was like, "This is where I'm going to retire." I think it was that, but it's like, dude, I mean, like. You're 30. 
even if you've got a great pension plan, you know, this can't be a good investment considering the position you work, where you're headquartered. I mean, like it just doesn't, you know, you might as well just build up your assets and. I don't know how pension plans I don't work. either. I'm just spitballing so, here. I'm trying to sound business smart. Well. It's not working, I can tell. Um, <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, so that's that's there. And then. Nadine and then Ed. Oh, yeah, they're just a lot. So Nadine is now like you know she's really in love with Ed because he helped her with the drapes I guess, and it's basically just a long it's a long scene. I was like skimming through it and it like the thumbnail was still Nadine and Ed for so many like clicks forward, but she's like hugging him and just telling him how much she goes in. Uh, yeah, she goes into a little bit of backstory about. being in high school and um you know ed and ed and norma in high school and nadine being kind of the you know like quiet nerdy mousy mm. character um and but but so yeah we get yeah, we start but, to get ed came to her at there. the end and it all worked out and they're so in love and like they're just it's a lot of like you know sort of over nadine's shoulder as she has her head on ed's shoulder and looking at his face and like She's just raking him over the coals. He feels, you know, pretty bad. And uh, there's a weird, a weird scene of Audrey eavesdropping, eavesdropping as uh, Jacoby uh, is trying to help Johnny uh, take his tribal headdress off. Thank God. And Ben and, and Ms. Horn, whose name I've forgotten. Sylvia. Sylvia, thank you. Mm-hmm. Sylvia! You're right, I should have... Oh, there we go. Um... They argue about it, I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think they're kind of just arguing about Johnny in general. Yeah, um, which... Uh, and, yeah. Well, so, everyone... So, we, we cut to the funeral, and I noticed that... I've never oh, been well, to a I funeral, wanna, so... You've never been to a funeral? I've never been to a funeral, and so I noticed that everyone was really circled super, super close around the coffin, and I just, like, it looked weird, but... I don't know how funerals actually work. I've only seen them in movies. Yeah, so that's kind of, kind of how they, I mean, I've been to a couple. Um, That's kind of how they go. It's not always, you're not always like that close around the coffin. Yeah, I didn't realize you got that close to the, like, edge of the grave. It's not usually all the way around it. Um, Okay. But yeah, I mean, they usually are that close on Um. at least one side, especially like family members. So it's a little weird that the whole town is that close. Um, normally people hang back a little bit more, but I mean, well, for so, like Donna and Leland and Sarah and um, like the Haywards to all and Bobby and his family to all be that close. That that seems normal to me. There's there's a lot of actual like continuity and staging mistakes. Um, wow. If you look at how like if you, there's a overheads, it's just one tight circle of the main characters, um, like mediums and longs on cooper and the people with him there's like extras in the background and then close on coop there's no one behind him even though like andy and stuff uh should be but (laughs) yeah so that was one thing i did catch sorry twin peaks gotcha there uh but they're basically just sort of as the priest reads the whatever the priest does uh the things the last rites the book of the dead i don't really understand uh, it's just a prayer. Prayers. It's he's just priest, praying. He's, as the priest prays, that does make sense. Um, they they have close-ups on basically the people that have 
been highlighted in the episode so far. Um, but James shows up late. He's a douche. Um, but I did have to note Audrey with her hair back. Damn. Uh, and Donna looks great. Those gals clean up well. Um, yeah, because they normally are so, you know, unattractive. <laughs> I just mean, like, no, way to, like, take a funeral by storm. That's all. Like, um, Yeah. Um, up, upstaging the prom queen corpse. Um, <laughs> so, I don't know. I The Johnny character for me is, like... It's real bad. Uh, it's really bad. I, like, I don't know how to address this in, like, a a proper or woke way like so i don't want to step on my toes or put my feet in my mouth or whatever the phrase I also, is like but, i don't understand uh, it's just like i don't understand what johnny's po- character is what's the point what the point is other yeah. than it being super problematic in like a basically in in you know like david lynch and mark frost using a mentally disabled person to set a tone which yeah no oof, yeah david I, mm. <laughs> I mean like and that's i i think I, we haven't it's way ahead but in the episode that johnny is features in in the new season that is also what he does like almost explicitly using to set the tone um and I, I don't like that no although it is a really good scene but um <laughs> still uh but anyway so johnny at the end of the prayer yells out like amen uh, kind of awkwardly, but it, I actually, but this is cool because then Bobby behind everyone like repeats it and yells it out loud and kind of yeah. backs him up. And it's, it's a weird way of like relieving our own sort of, you know, that sort of awkward tension when, yeah, someone, you know, shouts something awkwardly during a funeral. Um, and it's a wrote, he goes open mic on it, just sort of yeah. blaming, blaming the towns, you know, you killed Laura. So you this know, was we're the... all to blame. This was the scene that I wanted to talk about, and I don't know that I don't know if I can talk about this without spoilers. Um, I do want to be a little more careful about spoilers going forward. But it's still fun. <laughs> yeah, I know, but sometimes we gotta make sacrifices. <laughs> okay, well, just just all right. Just, okay, go so ahead. I'm just I'm so I'm just Wrap gonna here. put a disclaimer that there's there's. Spoilers for my next bit of analysis here, because I think. All right, is, skip I, ahead two minutes, everyone. Yeah, we'll we'll say like, okay, we're done spoiling things now, because I th- this scene, this is really important. This scene in particular to the larger show, I think, which is that, you know, Bobby goes off on his rant about, you know, like you want to know who killed Laura Palmer, like you did, we all did, and it's it's kind of over dramatic and like clearly the the sort of dramatic rantings of a very like emotionally um like emotionally vulnerable but also defensive character you know kind of traumatized but cocaine addict Uh. well that too but i think like the thing about this is that bobby is really is actually really clear-eyed about this situation in a way that only you know kind of an angry 17 year old can be um because he's, he's not, like, you know, he's not being polite or, you know, um, like, you know, talking about it in the way that everybody else wants to talk about it, which is that, like, you know, this was a terrible, like, terrible, terrible tragedy, and, and nobody could have, you know, like, oh, like, if only something could have been done, and if only, like, we could have done something to prevent this, and, 
you know, we, we had no idea that this was happening. And Bobby kind of calls everyone out on their, on their shit and says, like, we all knew this was happening. You know, we all knew that there was something going on and looked the other way. And I think it, it's, you know, because he's not wrong, mm. right? I mean, there's, there is kind of a direct, like, causal link through a lot of the, you know, a lot of the characters in Twin Peaks, a lot of the, the characters that we've met, um, including Bobby, like, to Laura's death. You know, you can, I mean, this, this plays, this is going to play out over the next however many episodes of the season that they keep tracing these leads to these different characters in Twin Peaks, and it turns out that that's, that's not the end of it. That's just another sort of link in what led to Laura's death. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's a way in which, which Twin Peaks, you know, the, the weird supernatural stuff that comes in, you know, it's not symbolic, and it, it is just like a, sort of a, a mythos of Twin Peaks, but there's a way in which it kind of, the show kind of works as, it kind of works without that being, all of that being real. Like there's, you know, it's, it's not the intention of the show, but there's, you, there's a way in which you can kind of read it as they're not actually being these like supernatural. Oh, I totally think so. I think, yeah. I think that is intentional. Yeah. And so I think it, I mean, right. What I'm saying is like, we're not supposed to come away from it and say like, Oh, this is just a metaphor. Like, no, yeah, yeah. but it is, you know, it is an actual, like, you know, there is actually supernatural forces at work, but they are also symbolic. And I think that's the way in which the show works best as commentary mm. um, in the way that, you know, it is supposed to be a, a commentary on, on sort of like this dark, dark underside to small town life. Um, yeah, very murder on the Orient Express sort of. Uh, everyone's got a little bit of the the knife. Yeah, and it, spoilers for Murder on the Orient Express, I guess. I I haven't seen it, so I guess we haven't called off the spoiler warning yet. But yeah, but yeah. So I and I mean I think like, you know, there is a way. I won't I won't outright spoil it here, but there. You know, there is a way to kind of, you know, you can take Bob out of it and this is still like a horrifying murder plot and the supernatural elements kind of explain the motivation behind the actual murder. But I mean, it's not unthinkable to have that be the, to have the way that it plays out be the way that it plays out. Yeah, well, and to, and to everyone else in that world watching, that is exactly how it plays out. Exactly, yeah, exactly, um, exactly. So. And so, I don't know, I just, I think that this this scene with Bobby is, like, really, really kind of crucial to that layer of interpretation okay. of Twin Peaks. Yeah. And spoilers. Um, and spoilers. I guess it doesn't help if you skipped, well, and spoilers, and spoilers, and spoilers. There you go. Got a little bit of a bumper. Um so uh, James and Bobby sort of go at it after Bobby's uh, freestyle. Um, and I actually really like this. It's a really dynamic, modern-looking slow-mo scene with a lot of bodies moving diagonally across the screen as they're trying to hold back Mike and Bobby. It cut out of it to fast motion really badly, but this is a bit of camera work where I think there's some wonky stuff throughout the episode, but this is really, really cool. Um, mm-hmm. I love this bit. After that, uh, Leland, like really abruptly after that, jumps onto the coffin and sort of screams for Laura. And the coffin lowering mechanism goes haywire and it starts lowering him in the coffin up and down in the grave as he's like screaming. And Sarah Palmer 
is there and she's like telling him not to ruin this to um, yeah and and i think that it really the one other thing that i will say about this this episode in particular but also you know everything we've seen of the show so far is that you know the one place in which it is even in moments like this taking itself very seriously is in its like portrayal of sarah palmer's grief like Mm -hmm. it is so like raw and unfiltered and this like you know the the feeling of her like desperately needing this closure of the funeral and not getting it is just like it's hard to watch Mm -hmm. and yeah especially when you sort of i think the previous scenes uh with leland dancing and her coming in to see that and it's like really building her emotional turmoil and yeah just the the continuous sort of stress that she's under while her husband uh deals with it very bad loses it yeah yeah i really loses i mean obviously don't criticize but um so and that's sort of actually the climax of the episode there's still a lot to go but everything after that is sort of falling action Mm -hmm. um which i guess speaks to that pacing you were talking about earlier but again i actually i sort of like it yeah i don't think it's bad i just noticed that it was a little bit different but it does feel very intentional well, okay, so here's, here's so what, after after that scene, we get a really cool uh, night shot of an intersection, um, and there's the corners on the shot are slightly blurred and darkened, so it gives that, that dreaminess and that, that otherworldliness to the shot, um, and then it's a very close cut to the double R logo, and then we cut into the diner, and again, that was just a really good bit of editing, um, I really appreciated it. Um, and again, it just it's it's little touches like that where even if David Lynch isn't directing, uh, these guys clearly know what they're doing because that felt, you know, like a good way to keep the aesthetic, you know, right on track. Um, and we see Shelly uh, is in the diner and she's miming the coffin incident with her fingers and a napkin holder. Um, yeah. To two, like, two of the, the patrons are, like, digging this, and she's really milking it. And it's like, wait a minute, what about, like, the goodness of Twin Peaks? Like, people... and I, I think this is interesting, too, because it, it does kind of show this other side. Because the first couple of episodes were just all of these people who were so ridiculously enamored of Laura, so deeply affected by her death. And I think this is one place where the episode does do a good job of reminding us that, like, Twin Peaks is not actually as small as what we've seen so far mm, mm-hmm. because there are these two guys who are in the diner who, you know, they're just loving this shit. Yeah. It's, and it's a small enough town that like, they know what's going on and they heard that something happened, but they're not connected to Laura Palmer. They're not upset by this. And, you know, we kind of see that Shelly isn't that deeply affected by it either. Yeah. Um, and what do they I, care about? Some muckety muck lawyer. Um, yeah. Like it's just, it's a really, I think this is a, a good, a good break from that kind of tone of like this whole town is so distraught over this you know murdered homecoming queen it's like eh, yeah some people like just don't care like and it's like no judgment on them but they you know they're like Uh, that's true i'd probably laugh i'll be honest um yeah (laughs) uh okay but uh this sort of leads into my my other point which is that um so we we move from them behind them and we see that coop ed truman and hawk are all in a booth um, mm-hmm. Norma takes their order and Coop just asks Ed how long he's been in love with her. It's pretty awkward. Just totally nails him. Afterwards, Truman explains that they have been tracking, uh, one Jacques Renault, uh, and 
this started because Ed Ed had been drugged. He thought uh, at the at the bar and thought it was Jacques Renault who slipped it into his drink. And Ed has been investigating. And Coop's like, "Are you a deputy?" And he's like, "No, I am not. I'm just doing it anyway." And Coop's like, "That's illegal, but I don't care." Um, well, but I think so. I think that going into this scene and the ones that follow, what kind of happens is that you know we kind of get this sort of mutual understanding between between Coop and particularly Truman, but I mean also the rest of like you know, the rest of the characters that you know they're both kind of outside the realms of normality in there. Like they are they are law enforcement people who are working outside of the normal kind of bounds of mm. of law enforcement and the normal rules of the universe. Um, and so I think that that I think that's why Coop reacts that way is he's like it, it struck me as kind of a like okay I get it like there's something else going on here that you've you've gone outside of the just your deputies to... mm-hmm. and so well and this, this significantly Andy is not there <laughs> yeah well oops uh, but Truman this leads into Truman uh, explained to Coop that for all the good of Twin Peaks there is a darkness to it out in the woods, he says. And this is, and he's, you know, literally describing sort of a dark side of Twin Peaks. And I think that's interesting because then this second half of the episode, because the climax takes place like halfway through, becomes kind of like the dark mirror to all those like good Twin Peaks values that Coop mm. is, you know, telling Albert about at, in, yeah. in the first half. No, that's, you're right. I didn't even think about that. It was no. interesting too. Just um, spitballing off the dome here. That um, um, that Truman sort of talks about both like the good things and the bad things about Twin Peaks being sort of a product of of Twin Peaks being so isolated and so sort of self-contained, which I think is kind of one of the like thematic parts of season one that gets you know upended in season three. Mm. So. Um, so because of this darkness, they have formed a secret society um, called the Bookhouse Boys, and they tell Coop this, and I think they, like, blindfold him, right? I don't know. I don't remember if I they blindfold like him. I, love, I just shouldn't. need to note that I love this scene so much. I love the, the Bookhouse Boys stuff. The Bookhouse? Well, so they go to the Bookhouse, the meeting place uh, location. Not super established, I guess, but um, I guess that's on purpose because I do think they blindfold Coop. Uh, which an FBI agent should not let happen to himself. Uh, and I have noted, again, weird cameras, they walk in, uh, but the coffee is free. Uh, so you know our boys there. And I actually really, I liked the camera on second watch. Again, there's a lot of like things that I think feel out of place because I'm so used to how the show normally looks, but there's something very modern and contemporary about a lot of stuff they're doing in this. So Yeah, um, and I... I don't know, like this, um, the whole, like, you know, secret society out in the woods fighting this darkness. Like, it's very, I don't know, it's both very, like, tropey, but also they, they still make it feel very fresh, like, in these scenes. I, you know. I feel like the Bookhouse Boys don't really come, like, they don't have that much to do with the overall show, though, which is kind of disappointing. Yeah, but I think um, I think part of the like part of why it works so well is that it is kind of understated and it doesn't just become this mm. whole thing about like Coop joining the Bookhouse Boys. True. So when they get there, though, like James and James's friend, 
Joey uh, Paulson. Joey Paulson. There we go. Um, another JP. Uh, but they have a guy just like tied up and gagged. And so it turns out it's Bernard Renault, who's like the younger brother of Jacques Renault, and they caught him with cocaine. But like, okay, so like Ed doing some like snooping, that's some extra legality that I think Coop can let fly. This is maybe much. Maybe not okay, I'm going to say. Yeah, I know, I know. I just, I, know. I, I think, I think there is an understanding here of the nature of the situation. I think that regardless of whether it's, I could, I could certainly see Coop having kind of a moral objection to this. And I, I do, I do think it's a little weird that he's, he is just so quickly chill with it. Um, but I think, you know, maybe what we're not seeing is that there's sort of a trade off between like, okay, this is like not really ethical practice, but also like, you know, we are dealing with sort of supernatural forces. I mean, Coop is aware of that by this point. And these are the people from this place who understand that. Um, and I so guess he's, I just, he, he's working with limited resources. I think this, this could have been an opportunity for them, though, to have a thing where, like, Coop is a little bit taken aback by the fact that for all he was espousing about, you know, Truman being upstanding. And, no, he's not going to sign that report because, you know. Yeah. Like, this could be a moment where he's like, wait a minute, this is, wow, okay, I did not realize that, you know, like, have have that sort of darkness of Twin Peaks not just be something that Truman narrates, but something that Coop sees reflected in the characters themselves. That's um, true. Yeah. But, whatever. Anyway, they ter- they interrogate uh, Bernard, uh, Bernie, as Coop calls him, and his accent is atrocious. He sounds Jamaican, not French-Canadian <laughs> whatsoever. Uh I didn't even, are there, this is, I'm gonna, I know nothing about Canada. Um, are there also French Canadians on that side of Canada? Because I thought they were just in Quebec. I, I mean, again, like, I assume there are French Canadians anywhere because they can just move. But yes, I also do believe that was just sort of a weird oversight on their part. Okay, yeah, because um, I was like, I don't, I was like, I don't think that's the right side of Canada for that. I'm pretty sure that, I'm pretty sure that we have the... Well, I guess then, I don't, again, I don't, I don't live below that side of Canada anymore. They're kind but. of like, they're decent big time drug runners with like a set a established operation. So, you know. Yeah. They probably move around. Um, you know, Fair they've enough. got different drop houses. And shit. But, um, so, but eventually he admits that Jacques is going to be bartending at the roadhouse, which that's just his job. That's where Ed like was uh, suspected him first so i don't know why they don't just like i don't know why they had to interrogate him for that they could have just gone to the bar um but and it actually worked against them because uh somehow they managed to get a signal so that when jacques approaches the bar he sees a light on that signals him that like he's in trouble so he calls leo uh, and asks them to help with the border run uh and after that we see shelly has a gun yeah and, and she she hides it like in a panel, yeah. on like the side of the um, like the kitchen counter. Um, so we like, like to oh go on. Oh no, it's just it's sort of the second appearance now, and there's gonna be another one that we'll get to in about two seconds. Of like, there's a lot of secret compartments in this. Yeah, a lot episode. of secret compartments. Yeah, because yeah. Audrey is kind of in that like which most obvious secret passageway opening ever. Jesus, um, when she goes into like eavesdrop on her parents and Johnny, oh, yeah. and then. Um, yeah, Shelly has this, and then 
again in a couple seconds we'll get to the the Josie scene I have Truman and Josie sitting in a tree D-R-I-N-K-I-N-G wine didn't work out wasn't quite enough syllables but close um, they're being all cutesy and but Josie's kind of freaked out and she tells Truman that uh, she thinks Catherine is gunning for her um, but holy shit turns out Catherine's actually got her bugged so Catherine's listening to everything she's saying um, I hate this subplot <laughs> it's it's pretty terrible I you you in the last one admitted that you hated the James and Donna subplot. I hate this one. This is my subplot that I hate. I've Did never I cared I about. I hated this. the James and Donna subplot. Yeah. Ugh. I guess I dislike a lot of these. Uh, there's yeah, just there's so like this, this a one, few this too one's many. Mine to hate. Yeah. Because it just okay. like it just it so quickly devolves from what it initially is, which is like Catherine, literally and metaphorically being in bed with Ben Horn to get the land for his, cause he wants the land that Amil is on. Um, but it just, like, it so quickly devolves into this, like, soapy intrigue did, you know. Yeah, and then eventually... Did uh, my sister-in-law murder my husband? Like, what is going on? And then Josie gets sucked into a doorknob? <laughs> Spoilers. So, yeah, I, that one I'm not really concerned about. Um Hey, just because just cause they're bad plots doesn't mean they're not spoilers. <laughs> okay, well, so so Josie goes to uh, show Truman the two ledgers that she found, um, but when she does, it looks like Catherine has gotten to it first, so there's only one. Uh, Pete walks in on her hiding that ledger, um, but when he kind of confronts her, she just turns it around on him and says, like, you've been you know, planning with Josie. If you want to do something, you know, you just tell me. Like, man up and come out with your stuff. Don't just be, sno- like, you know, snooping around behind my back. Which is, like, I, I, that was actually kind of a cool moment of, like, oh, okay. It's not just, like, it's not just bait and switch. You know, people aren't just stealing ledgers back and forth, you know, till yeah. the intrigue is, like, at seven. Like, she just comes out and says, like, no, like, I know it's happening. You know? And I will say that as much as I dislike this subplot, I do think that they do a good job of making... Catherine and Pete's dynamic compelling. He's cucked. Um. <laughs> but he's not, I mean, as much as he, you know, she kind of like, especially in the, the first couple of episodes, you know, he kind of lets her berate him and boss him around. He's a more complicated character than that. And I, I like that about, I mean, because he's at least trying to help Josie. You no, know? no. So it's just, they're, they could have easily put very one-dimensional characters into this bad subplot. But I think it's very daring have... they put a cuck into it. <laughs> it's progressive, especially for the time. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm just derailing. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad. I'm glad that my everything everything works as a, a setup for your jokes. <laughs> look it's called ebb and flow it's like this it's that thing in um bojack horseman where there's the two guys that... show that i don't watch okay well there's just a really great bit where there's like a, a comedy team but it's just that one guy always writes the punchlines and always one guy always writes the setup and they're like envious because they want to switch jobs anyway um <laughs> 
That's a good show. There's my endorsement. I only did movies this time, so TV. Bojack Horseman. Duh. Like, you needed me to tell you that. Um, so Truman says to Josie. It makes everybody hate their life. I don't understand why that's good. Go on. I mean, existence is agony. Um, Truman tells yes, Josie. Why dwell on it? <laughs> everything is going to be okay. And, like, the theme music rises, and they go at it um, on the floor. Uh, it looks uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. I, so, yeah. She's a grown woman with a bedroom. Jesus. Seriously. I know. But then we cut to uh, Coop and Hawk in the very room of the Great Northern that we are podcasting from now. You uh, skipped Lawrence Jacoby's whole thing. What? You skipped Lawrence Jacoby's whole oh, thing. Oh, no, you're right. I skipped a big whole thing. Damn. Yeah, so... Um, so Coop walks up on Jacoby at, at uh, Laura's grave. Jacoby is wearing a very uh, extravagant outfit. He's got like a hat and a cape. It's awesome. It's pretty good, actually. Okay, so this was another... another. Um, so this and then the scene with Hawk that we'll get to in a second. These were the beats that really came back to what I was saying at the beginning about how I felt like a lot of what this show did what this episode of the show did was more sincere. So this scene where Coop walks up on Jacoby, like putting flowers on Laura's grave, this this is a very like a very different, you know, portrayal of, of Jacoby than we got in the first episode where he's just kind of a crazy person. Um, and this is like kind of meant to be compelling. It kind of is. It, it kind of is because he like confesses his sins to Coop. And yeah. he basically says, he's like, I don't really care about my patients. I just kind of like listening to their problems, but I don't, it does, they, they don't matter to me. And like, except for, I guess he says like, except for Laura. Yeah. She made and me like feel again. And it's kind of creepy, but it's also like. It damn, is like, creepy, but it's. But it's a genuine character. Yeah. And like, that's, that's a, you know, it's quick, but that's a level of depth um, that. I'm not sure he gets in any other part of the show. No. Uh, and I think that's the thing is like, you know, when when these characters are, are functioning as tropes and as commentary and as, you know, sort of these uh, like allegorical roles that they have, um, you know, then they are working really well. Like they work really well on that level. But when you take that away, you are just you do get to see this really like more compelling and complicated side to them. And they do feel a lot more like, like when the characters are presented as real people, that's equally as compelling as when they're, you know, presented kind of as commentary. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the strengths and why, you know, why this episode works, even though it is so different than a lot of the other episodes is again, you know, this is a good, this would be a good show, even if it wasn't sort of, weird and and um satirical and doing all of these other things that it you know this could have just been a really good like well-written show and it is but then it is also doing all those other things so all correct but you do a quarter in the weird jar okay (laughs) can i can i use a bunch of pennies because those don't go in the parking meters so oh, that's fine. Yeah, I need sure. to save my. I need it's to mostly save my for the quarters. sound effects. So just do whatever the foley, you know, however the foley works. Um, okay. You can bang a fork against the table if that sounds like a quarter. Um, why do I have a? Why do you think I have a fork? I'm saying you could. I don't know. Foley artists—they got a bunch of different things. 
So, okay. So, um, but yeah, so yeah, it's at the grave. And I guess they just sort of cut away from that afterwards. And then, yeah, sorry, the scene with Josie. Um, and then we get to Coop uh, broadcasting live from the Great Northern, uh, <laughs> talking to Hawk about, like, spirits. Yeah, and, and this is another, like, this This was felt like a really genuine, like, kind of closing out scene that you would see in, like, it didn't, like, not in a bad way, but that you would see in, you might see in a lot of other TV dramas. Mm. Well, I mean, I but I think it's cool because, like, I don't know, I, I really love this ending because you pan over after they're sort of talking to Leland and there's, like, a dance night going on and he's alone and sort of catchy music comes on and he gets his dance I think on. It's, I think it's Pennsylvania 65,000 again. Okay. That's, huh. Um, I think I think so. I don't remember exactly, but I, I think that was part of what it is. Write in and tell us, that, listeners. Yeah, I'm pretty sure not gonna it's check. the same, same song. Um, but he gets his dance on too much, and he's, like, begging for people to dance with him. He's kind of ruining the show, and so uh, Coop and Hawk have to escort him out as he has a breakdown on the dance floor. Uh, which sounds like my new hit album. Uh, and we cut to a red light and then to credits. And that's the end of our episode. Oh. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's the other thing is that this is a moment where Leland's ending scene there could really, it could go back into that sort of, like like the scene where he's dancing with the picture, like it could go back into that you know, really, like, heightened, uncomfortable place. Um, but it doesn't, like, Coop and Hawk kind of literally pull it back. Mm, yeah. So, which um, I think is an, an interesting move. Um, I think this, you know, this episode shows a lot of restraint in that way of still giving us these moments where it's, it's about to go there and then it doesn't quite um, in the way that the last episode did. And again, I think it, it sort of functions as a breather, uh, you know, for the audience, like... Kind Especially. of. I mean, you've got Leland going up and down on the... Yeah, but I mean, it's not as... No, I, like, I agree for the most part, yeah. The whole the whole episode isn't as... It's not as intense as the... It's intense in a different way than the last one, I guess. I won't say it's not as intense, but it's intense in a, a different way, and so it feels, it feels kind of necessary, especially for... I, I come back to this every episode, but I'm trying to imagine, like, what this, what this is like when you put this episode out into a world that like Twin Peaks didn't exist in yet. Mm. Um, Cause I just imagined that the last episode had to have been like a what? <laughs> and yeah. to have an episode that's a little more normal. Yeah. So I, I've sort of given my spiel on this episode throughout, but I really came around on this one. Um, again, when I saw that it was not written or directed by either of the dream team, I was a little skeptical and on my first watch through, especially because I'm, I'm taking notes a lot and I'm not watching the screen as much as I should be, I think, um, I wasn't thrilled. But going back and, and skimming through some of the scenes that we highlighted and, and looking at some of the, the camera work that goes on and just some of the writing, I think, um, is really, really, really solid in this episode. So I like this a lot. And I think this, again, like I said, with the funeral as that like central point and also a climax like in the middle of the episode um gives it a really unique feel and i think keeps just the narrative laser focused and really gives us a chance to have some of the characters that we have been watching come together 
and mm-hmm. interact kind of explosively. There's a lot of fighting. Um, there's a yeah, lot of tension. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff being sort of this build of emotion released over this sort of moment of finality of her being buried. Um, yeah. Although we never actually see it. Uh, no, because, because, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think this episode is, it's both using and pushing at the boundaries of some of the kind of like, you know, more traditional just plot structures. I mean, you know, even having kind of the, the high point of the tension be in the middle of the episode. And this is an episode that I, I feel like, I mean, you mentioned this earlier with um, just some of the some of the shots, but you know, even though this wasn't a, a Lynch and Frost episode, like this was clearly people who really knew what they were doing, um, and and really, you know, sort of know know their stuff both in relation to this specific show, but also in just like how to make an episode of a TV show, more generally. So, overall, positive score. Uh, I think this has been one of my favorite episodes to rewatch um, because it really was kind of a pleasure after. Kind of a rewatch and a half, but uh, yeah. Uh, join so us next time. Yeah, that's going to do it for us this week. Follow us on Twitter. We are, what are we, at Northern Live Pod? Oh, you're Never. supposed to handle the Twitter. I don't know. I am handling the Twitter. Right. I'm, yeah, so yeah, so we are we are at Northern Live Pod on Twitter, live from the, live from the Great Northern. You can check us out there for updates on new new episodes and we are on itunes Castbox, and spotify yeah Um, so go subscribe give us a a rating and a review on itunes means a lot if you want you can write in with uh, your best cherry pie recipes um although i also not mind blueberry or blackberry um or even a really good raspberry um yeah so you know send us send us your pie recipes to live from the great northern at gmail.com um and next time we will be talking about episode four the fifth episode the one-armed man